Celebrating UNESCO's International Year of Indigenous Languages 2019 with the SOAS World Languages Institute. I grew up with two parents speaking different languages to me. So my father always spoke in French and my mother always spoke in English. And we grew up in countries where different languages were being spoken. From a very early age, I think when I was four, I was already introduced to three languages um, and I could read the alphabet and write the alphabet in like Russian, Georgian and English. My first language was Georgian, but my brother and I had a nanny who was uh, Russian speaking. Then we moved to India and I I could speak Hindi a little bit with people in the street. So I speak English because I was born here and I've lived here most of my life. I speak Italian because my mother's Italian and I went to Italy for at least a month every year. And I speak Spanish because I lived in Spain for five years. So basically, I, I, I speak the languages I speak just because of circumstance. Okay, so I was born and raised in Belgium. So at home, I grew up speaking Kurdish. And then along with that, sort of came Turkish because I'm a Kurd from Turkey. But the Turkish was rather passive because my father was so against us learning it or even speaking it, but it would always somehow be in the background in our lives. Then I went to school and I learned Dutch, you know, because I'm from the Dutch part. And then after a couple of years at school, you learn French, and then comes English, and then even came German. So that's how I, you know, I, I will say that Belgium is a country that very much focuses on speaking different languages. I speak English. I sometimes speak Yoruba, sometimes, and I'm actually trying to learn it a little bit more um, because it's my heritage language. I learned Spanish and I moved to Spain and um, other languages I've learned are French, Chinese. <clears throat> I learned some Chinese um, by just because I was living in China. I took a Japanese intensive Japanese course for a month in Tokyo. Oh, so would you consider yourself to be multilingual? No. <laughs> you know, I used to take pride in the fact that I could speak another language. But at the same time, I was ashamed of it when it came to like being around in school. I do believe that being multilingual is so much more than just knowing the grammar and knowing how to speak. A lot of the times, like I really know when I'm immer- I know when I'm really immersing myself in a language when I can. Well, when I start dreaming in that language or when I think in that language. Well, multilingualism is obviously having multiple languages in your life. Just having lots of languages and lots of cultures involved in your life. Not necessarily your own, but more than one. You know, I guess speaking more than two languages. More than two? Yeah, well, because then you could just say I'm bilingual. And I think that if you are able to identify certain objects or your surroundings with a particular word in a certain language without actually knowing the entire language, I think that you are, in a sense, becoming multilingual. Hi, welcome to this podcast. My name is Fraser. And I'm Leo. And there we were just hearing from a group of people on their definitions of multilingualism and what it means to them, essentially. Uh, now, there's a whole kind of host of different parameters that we can use to define multilingualism. Uh, this is how we'll define it and the kind of things we're taking into account. So um, 
You can talk about being bilingual, trilingual, multilingual, plurilingual, polyglot. Um, there's a lot of people who say you're only multilingual if you speak at least four languages. So some people's definition of multilingualism requires fluency, essentially. You're only truly bilingual if you grew up speaking both languages and you can, you can actually do everything in that language, which isn't always necessarily true. So multilingualism cannot really be reduced to this idea uh, of speaking several languages with each language nicely <laughs> in its labelled box. That is one way of being multilingual, and I don't want to discredit that way of being multilingual. Um, for many Europeans, that's the fashion of being multilingual that they are most exposed to. Because in many European contexts, people have one clear mother tongue so um, a language that is the language of their identity, that is also the language of the family, the language of education. And then other languages are introduced in a very formal educational settings as L2s. Of but within academia and outside of academia, as we've just heard, there are really quite a lot of varying definitions of multilingualism. We're going to stick to um, defining multilingual as anything that's not monolingual. Yeah, so basically we're keeping it as open as we can, we're keeping it as broad as we can. If you can speak more than one language, use more than one language, then we're going to consider you multilingual because we're an all-inclusive place here, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, so... What I would say is you know, maybe we should introduce ourselves and where we fit into this. It's been very rude and we've just launched in without really telling you who we are or what we do. Uh, we probably represent two very standard Western European cases. Leo, would you like to tell everyone where you're from and how languages have come into your life, perhaps? Well, so first of all, I'm not quite sure if we are really that standard um, in the sense of that we learned languages at school, maybe. Yeah, so... That is what I was aiming for, yeah. <laughs> So um, I'm German, as you can probably not tell by my accent, um, but I went to a bilingual um, English-German state school. So I was educated in German and English from the very beginning. Um, and my family is sort of multilingual. Um, my grandmother is from Bolivia but my mum doesn't really speak Spanish because my grandmother was told not to speak Spanish to her kids because it would confuse them with all the German going on around them. Yeah, so um, I, while well, going to a German school, we basically do lo loads of languages at school in Germany. It's kind of, you know, a thing in Europe outside of the UK. And <laughs> so I did French at school, I did Latin at school, I started learning Spanish when I was 21, lived in Argentina for a while. I speak Spanish, German and English at home um, nowadays. So I use those three languages on a very regular basis. Um, then I did Erasmus in Italy, learned Italian, um, did a bit of Turkish, bit of Arabic, um, did two semesters of, or trimesters rather, of Farsi here at SOAS. Yeah, and maybe we should also mention that we both study linguistics, focusing on endangered languages. That, that is probably something we should also mention. The reason we are here is that we do study linguistics here at SOAS, uh, and of course, which covers language endangerment, uh, which is probably its own whole podcast, which we're not going to cover now. But that, that, is, that is how we met and why we're both here. What about you? Would you consider yourself multilingual? 
Oh, I see what you did there. Um, so my trajectory is probably far, well, probably very common to a lot of uh, English people, probably from outside of uh, larger cities, let's say. Uh, so I grew up uh, to two English parents in a very monolingual English setting. Hi, mum and dad. Um, and yeah, I didn't really start learning languages until I got to secondary school. So I did French and Spanish at school, which is you know, a very common, I think, pair of languages to add. Uh, I went to university, did French, Spanish and Russian there because I enjoy torturing myself with hard languages, apparently. Uh, added a bit of Serbian in for a year, which I've all you know, all but since forgotten, unfortunately. Uh, later on in life, then moved to Brazil for a short period where I picked up Portuguese. And that's, that's you know, where I find myself now. So mine, you know, I've, I've learned languages through formal education, but also through immersion. But I, I maybe represent a slightly more typically monolingual English kind of background story, perhaps, compared to you. But multilingual now, nonetheless. <laughs> I like to think so, yes. I mean, certainly it makes my CV look nice, doesn't it? But uh, uh, it's not all about that, is it? Um, over the course of our studies here at SOAS, we um, worked with a language consultant who's a great example of how uh, multilingualism is actually kind of normal. So our language consultant um, was from Senegal and he grew up speaking Wolof because that was his mother's language, Fulani which was his father's language, uh, French because that was the language of education um, and then got sort of in touch with English. Um, his parents also spoke Bambara and uh, Sera. So he not only grew up speaking different languages with each of his parents, but also depending on where he was during his childhood, he moved around quite a lot within Senegal, he would speak different languages. And then in school, it was strictly French, which is another thing we're going to come back to a bit later. Um, and Friederike Lübke, I should probably say that properly, shouldn't I, being German? Friederike Lübke. Yes, say it, say it in German, say it in, say it in real nice German. Friederike Lübke, who's a professor here at SOAS, gave us another very nice example, also from Senegal, from Casamance. Which is down in the south, just below the bit where Gambia sticks into Senegal. If you if you look at it on a map, you'll notice that Gambia is like a little little finger that's been stuck in Senegal there. Um, so she gave, gave us a lovely example of what someone's language repertoire might be and how they use those languages on a daily basis. You might have somebody um, from Anyak, for instance. So let's take uh, somebody who still lives there first, who has learned Bainokudyaha and sees himself as, you know, related to Bainokudyaha. So that's the foremost identity language, who will have learned Mandinka, because his mother spoke it, and uh, who will have learned Creole and Baland, Manjak, in the closer village context, because all these languages are spoken in the village, and who will have strengthened his Wolof by working in Ziganshaw, by going to Dakar, so this Ziganshaw is the regional city, Dakar is the capital, and the northeast are more associated with Wolof. Um, will have learned French, at school, yeah, and now actually has a neighbor or had a neighbor who speaks a tiny language, Kasanga, and started picking up a little bit of Kasanga. So what's described here can be called translanguaging, 
That's one of those buzzwords in linguistics at the moment. Linguists love the word translanguaging. It's it's all the rage. It's like, I don't know, what are the kids using these days? What we should point out is that Friederika has done a lot of research uh, in this part of the world. She's an expert on West Africa, and she focuses quite a lot on multilingualism. She's even been on the TV, on the BBC, so she's a, a legit source that we can reference. Um, she's also very nice as well. But multilingualism and translanguaging is not just something that occurs in West Africa. It's something we can find all over the world, for example, in Pakistan. They all speak like Urdu, and, but they also speak Pashto, and they speak Patwari as well. And like, I remember going to like our local town and my dad would like speak to this guy in Pashto, Patwari and Urdu, just because they knew all of them, and so they would like go in and out, and f- for certain references they were making, they would start talking in Pashto, because that's how they remember that thing, or that's the best way for them to refer to that thing. And then other, when they were talking more about business things, because he, they were, I don't know, my dad was buying something off him there, then they would revert back to Urdu. But here, I don't speak a lot of Georgian, or if I'm feeling very angry, I'll just start speaking Georgian on the street and maybe swear a little bit, but nobody understands. I'm, I'm not used to telling a sad story in Spanish, for example. It's, it's like the language I would use when I'm having a, a beer with a friend. I was educated in Dutch, you know, I couldn't express myself in ways in Dutch that I cannot in Kurdish and that at the end of the day it is what it is. But then Kurdish for me is a language that I sort of communicate with my family, with my community. Patwari I can't really use, no, I can't use it anywhere near an academic level. I like, I always knew that my English and Polish were both at a native level, but the context I used them in was very different. So English for me was like always the language of the classroom in like kind of academic situations and the language I speak with like my mom and my mom's family. But Polish was the language that I used like with my friends. Like right now if I had to write a Georgian essay, I wouldn't be as good as I would, it wouldn't be as good as it would be in, in English. Yeah, so that that's a bunch of people's kind of background stories about how quite often They'll use different languages in different situations, but not necessarily use them for all occasions in all situations. Which brings us back to the question of what makes you multilingual? Do you have to be fully fluent in all situations and all domains of life? No, we asked people whilst we were interviewing them if they felt that fluency was absolutely necessary to consider somebody bilingual or multilingual. And here's a few little snippets of what people had to say on that. I think sometimes we get a bit carried away with the idea of fluency in the sense that, so let's say that maybe you you can't have a conversation about, you know, geopolitics in in a foreign language, but there are probably plenty of people who speak that language fluently who wouldn't be particularly proficient in talking about that. You you cannot standardise fluency. (laughs) And um, it's also impossible to test it actually there's very often this idea that even in a multilingual area you could test somebody's proficiency by just measuring um, how many words they have in each language or whether they how many contexts they can talk about in each of their languages the problem is that these multilinguals don't use all their languages in every context which i think is something that in reality also westerners experience um, so, for instance, I would find it very difficult to talk about linguistics in German uh, <laughs> or write about linguistics in German, even more difficult. And it would sound wooden and very artificial. 
if you, even if you know it fluently at one point in time, if you don't practice it for a while, then you you're naturally going to lose some fluency. So. Because I think language it's like it's a very huge scope, you know, for someone like what counts as perfectly fluent in a certain language. Uh, having the ability to hold a basic conversation, I think, is more than enough. The whole point is communicating, right? And if you're able to communicate your basic needs, I think that's what counts. Well, I don't think you'd necessarily have to be bilingual. Um, for instance, I grew up in over eight countries in my life, and in some countries I found myself thinking in a language I was absolutely not fluent in. And I think that if you are able to identify certain objects or your surroundings with a particular word in a certain language without actually knowing the entire language. I think that you are, in a sense, becoming multilingual. Um, but you can also be, you know, learning a language and, you know, not knowing the full language and not being fully bilingual, but you can still be considered multilingual. I don't think it's like a clear-cut, either you're born bilingual, you know, brought up by two different language-speaking parents, either, you know, you're not. I don't. I think that there's a large spectrum. Perhaps none of us are truly fluent in that case in any language. So, yeah, I mean, if we go back to the example of our language consultant from Senegal, you know, whilst we were working with him, uh, part of what we were doing, we would, like, kind of get some basic words in Wolof, which is what he considered his, uh, his mother tongue. And even in his mother tongue, we asked him for, I think the numbers, was it the numbers 1 to 20 we asked him for? After 10 was difficult for him essentially because all of his schooling had been in French and he told us that um, for him speaking Wolof at school wasn't an option because if they caught you speaking Wolof you would be shamed you would have to wear the silly necklace which is not unfortunately not only I mean it still I think happens in some parts of the world very sadly but uh, I mean it did happen up until about I think 50 60 years ago even in the British Isles so uh, it happened uh, in with Welsh, for example. Uh, people would have what's called the Welsh knot, so again, a necklace-type thing uh, put around their neck. Uh, it's quite common across Celtic languages, actually, so it happened with Scots Gaelic, uh, also with Irish Gaelic, uh, Breton in France. They would have to wear, I think, a boot around their neck or something to that effect, just essentially to shame them. And if you were the one with the symbol of shame around your neck at the end of the day, you uh, you got a, you got a whooping. Yeah, so... Um... Again, something that sort of happens all over the world when one language is imposed and another language is, um, well, when you're discouraged from speaking another language. Um, and I suppose, I mean, the effects of that can be like very long lasting. I mean, you know, it leaves quite an impact on people. Um, so there's an example um, that, we, that we brought up in one of our classes. Um, so from a paper by Dauenhauer and Dauenhauer, uh, where they, they're talking to speakers of Tlingit, which is a, uh, a language from Alaska. Um, and one guy, as they were, they were interviewing people and asking them about kind of teaching the language in schools and trying to bring the language back. Uh, and one guy said he could still taste the soap in his mouth whenever he spoke Tlingit, which shows you kind of to what extent it was pretty much beaten out of them. It's pretty, uh, pretty, pretty gnarly stuff. Yeah, and even to a lesser extent, um, that sort of discouragement from speaking one language, especially in the context of education, can be seen, as uh, Elizabeth told us. So we were very highly discouraged from speaking Georgian. We had some Americans, uh, um, South African, we had like Australian teachers, and they didn't speak Georgian, they spoke English. So if we spoke, we couldn't speak Georgian in the classroom at all. 
if it was a common occurrence, you would be taken into like, detention. And I, I remember the teachers discouraging us by kind of saying how important it was for us to learn English because it was the language of everyone and how we were in a we were in a special space and we're so lucky to have had this opportunity to communicate in English. We didn't incur any harsh punishments because it, I, I was very lucky to be in the space. It's like a very elite school, it's a private school, and I did feel lucky. So they also didn't have the right to necessarily punish us per se, but I definitely felt discouraged. And By law in Catalonia, schools have a language immersion system in Catalan, so the, the language of teaching is Catalan. But in some schools, if, if the teacher doesn't know Catalan, they just do the class in Spanish and that's it. And that's illegal, but nobody says anything. And, you know, if you say anything, then you're, you're accused of being racist or supremacist. So what we've just heard about is mainly sort of language policy within education. So either coming from a government um, perspective where that's then Im um, implemented in schools or schools implementing their own language policy. So those, I think, are kind of what we think of more typically as examples of language policy. That's kind of language coming in um, from kind of from above, essentially, kind of a, a higher power imposing that on us. So coming back to coming back to language policy. Um, so we talked about government language policy a little bit and language policy on um, um, on the educational level. Um, but there's also family language policy. So I don't know about you, Fraser, you probably didn't have any family language policy issues I mean, coming from a monolingual family. I mean, to be honest, the only language that I had to speak at home was English. Um, although I was always encouraged uh, when I was younger to learn like key phrases whenever we went to France on holiday. So uh, I, I was there with my phrasebook in hand, mangling the French language from very early on. So, so in my in my case, we didn't really have much of language policy going on in my family. But nowadays, um, when I speak Spanish with my partner, and sometimes we just slip into Spanish, my dad gets super upset um, to a point where we've had a really big fight because he doesn't understand that sometimes you slip into a language without really noticing it. Right. I mean, especially as you know, as your you know your levels of proficiency get higher. But sometimes I think people as well. Sometimes it's just when you're telling a story. If if the thing you're telling a story about happened in Spanish, or if it happened in German, if it happened in Javanese, whatever language it is, you find yourself kind of reliving it through that language. Quite often, I want to point out this. Quite often comes across as kind of like, oh well, look at you, look at you showing off, look at you, you speak all these languages. It's not the case. It's just that. Brains are funny things. Coming back to family po language policies, um, we interviewed quite a few people on this subject and here's what they had to say about it. So for her it was important for me to be able to speak correctly and to, so not to be too regionalised, that it was sort of the national language. Whereas whenever I would speak to my grandmother, for instance, she would, she would often want to speak to me in her dialect, not, not for any reason other than just practicality. It's what she was used to speaking and what she spoke best. And my mother would always get angry and say, no, my, my son will learn proper Italian, not kitchen Italian, is what, how, she, how she puts it. Because this whole language policy that Turkey has um, very much influenced the language politics that the Kurdish diaspora has. Like I said, you know, my father, he moved to 
um, Belgium in the 80s and he was so against us learning Turkish, speaking Turkish, even hearing Turkish. Like we would have to speak Kurdish. So at home, I wasn't allowed to speak English. Um, this was a mandatory thing that my aunt and my grandmother specifically placed on me. I think it was only applied to me because I was the oldest kind of out of all the cousins. And they said that you're not allowed to speak any English at home or else you'll never learn Urdu, um, you know. And it, it was interesting. Back then I hated it because, you know, it was just having to switch. So I'd been talking in English the whole day at school. And then when I'd come home, all of a sudden my aunt wouldn't answer me. You know, like if I spoke to her in English, she would totally ignore me until I spoke in Urdu. Um, so I, I I really enjoy the the mental image um, of the angry grandma and the angry auntie. I I do quite enjoy that as a mental image. That's that's funny. What's interesting here is that in that case, it's like a really conscious step of making sure your child learns a language. Um, but we also heard from Samad in whose case it wasn't really much of a language policy. There wasn't really a conscious choice. It was just circumstance that dictated which language was spoken at home. In the house, before I went to school, I was learning a bit of Dutch through like TV and just going outdoors. But inside the home, my mother tongue was Patuari. So that's like from the Patuari plateau um, in Pakistan. And lots of people speak the language, but it's definitely not the official language or anything like that. Uh, so I learned that first just through my parents, my family, my cousins, you know, just hanging out with family, essentially. And um, my mum didn't speak any other language, so that kind of facilitated that learning, that like I was forced to learn it because there was, there was no choice. It wasn't like everybody was speaking Dutch in the house, uh, and so I never got the chance to learn it. it was, I was forced to learn it because my mother didn't speak they wouldn't tell us off, but my mom just wouldn't understand. So it was like, if I wanted to communicate anything with my mom, it would have to be in Patuari. There was no choice. If I spoke to her in Dutch, it would, she wouldn't understand it. Maybe a few words she would understand, but yeah, you couldn't have a conversation. Okay, so let's take it down. So we've done kind of big national government level policies. We've done kind of school policies. Uh, we went down another notch to family policies. Let's, let's zoom in even more. Because um, we can even have our own language policies, our own way of kind of choosing which language to use and in which context. Um, and a really, I think, great example we picked up from our interviews of this uh, was from Rojda. Uh, now, Rojda uh, is of Kurdish descent. She grew up in Belgium. Um, but she spoke of whenever she goes back to Turkey, the kind of things she has to do mentally uh, with her language repertoire. One of my earliest memories is when I was 12 years old and we actually went to what you would consider Kurdistan. And we were just walking about and I was speaking Kurdish and my cousin comes to me and she says, stop speaking Kurdish so loudly because if a police officer passes by and he hears you, he might make trouble out of it for no good reason. And then also whenever I'm in Istanbul, I find myself sort of monitoring myself and not speaking Kurdish or at least not very loudly. I will say that because I'm not part of, you know, Turkey's population, inevitably the consequences will not be the same for me as they are for someone who actually lives in Turkey. But I know for my family, for example, living in Turkey or in Kurdistan, where language policy was one of the biggest weapons of the Turkish state, um, they face a lot of discrimination. You know, if they basically grow up speaking Kurdish and then they go to school and they have to learn an entirely new language, they face a lot of discrimination, ugly remarks coming from the teacher, you know, racist remarks very much, even until this day um, that my cousin 
will tell me that. You know, racist remarks are very much part of the everyday in the education in Turkey, even in the parts that you would consider Kurdistan. And then inevitably, you know, growing up in an environment that forces you to speak Kurdish, even when they return to their homes, they find themselves speaking Turkish because it's, you know, Kurdish then becomes, they associate Kurdish then with all sorts of feelings and ideas that they come to reject themselves, even though that is very much who they are. Kurdish is interesting because it's, so on the one hand, you have sort of the personal um, choice of which language to speak when, and sort of the self-policing of your language use. But obviously that is tied to a much bigger policy level, which is at the government level, where the use of Kurdish is vilified by the Turkish government. But coming back to sort of more really personal language policy... So yeah, Albert is uh, okay. You know, he's a little bit closer to home. Albert's from Catalonia, um, so he might be a little bit more familiar to some of you. Um, here's what he had to say about his personal choices with regards to using Catalan and Spanish. Yeah, I basically started copying what um, minoritized speakers do. That is, switching to Spanish with Spanish speakers or foreign people. But then, when I was around 16, I decided to only speak Catalan in Catalonia. So that, that was a kind of a big um, psychological change. Or so we have um, the Catalan police, and but, but there is a Spanish police as well. So, for example, in the airport, uh, I asked something, and and the policeman said, "Oh, that's Catalan, right?" I mean, he he didn't even recognize it, and we we're like, "Yes, that's Catalan." Okay, so if you don't speak Spanish, I'm not going to help you. So, as you can see, choosing a language can be a really big political decision. It can be a conscious decision. Um, and if you don't speak multiple languages, you might think, well, this doesn't really apply to me. Or you might ask yourself, um, sort of outside of the political realm, um, how do you choose which language to speak when to whom if you have so many languages at your disposal? But think about how you change the way you speak, even within just one language. Exactly. So you have what are called in linguistics different registers, essentially different ways of speaking. Now, if you're sat there thinking like, well, I still don't get how this applies to me. I mean, one, well done for making it this far into the podcast. That's some dedication on your part. But, you know, think that you have different ways of speaking perhaps to a child. You know, you certainly wouldn't speak to your mother the way you speak to a police officer, or at least I would hope. That's a slightly strange relationship that you might have there. Or, you know, the way you would speak to the Queen is not the same as the way you would speak to the guy that comes in to repair the boiler in your house, perhaps. Exactly. So we all have varieties uh, within our registers. And we heard from a lot of people who speak several languages, even within their family. And here's what they have to say about mixing those languages and choosing which language to speak when and when to make a conscious effort to speak a certain language. And when we speak Japanese together, it's, it's mixed with English anyway. So when I'm at home with my son, we freely mix German, English and a little bit of Bainokujaha. And that's our kind of insider mix. Uh, but it was always a bit of a hybrid between like Patoiri and Dutch. And then when we came to the UK, it became even more of a hybrid at first. It was, we were speaking like, we were talking about um, translanguaging in one of our social linguistics classes. And uh, we, that's essentially what we were doing. We were like using our, our full repertoire of Dutch, English and Patoiri to communicate ideas to each other because we were all quite young when we came here. So naturally our vocabulary was not that complex when it came to Dutch. 
And with Patwari, it wasn't that complex because we were only using it in certain situations, in family situations. It was never like to do with numeracy or literacy or, or any kind of studies. And I was having a conversation with my mum over the phone one day when I was in Spain. And she was speaking to me in Yoruba. And my first instinct was just to respond in Spanish. When she asked me to speak Yoruba, I just responded in Spanish. And my mom, she's like Chinese uh, Canadian. She moved to Poland in the 90s and learned to speak Polish fluently. But obviously English is still her first language. And we were at a family gathering with some old Chinese relatives who could only speak Chinese. And she was trying to speak Chinese to them. And all of a sudden, she started speaking Polish to them and didn't even realize. And they were all just like staring at her. And then she was just like, why, what's going on? And then we were kind of just laughing, like, you, you do realize you're speaking Polish to them. So there are some sound bites you know, where people are talking about the, the different combinations of languages they choose to use within the family. So as you can see, it's not always really a question of um, just choosing a certain language because it's the better fit or whatever. Often it's actually the case of not having all kinds of vocabulary at your disposal in all of your languages. So we've heard about this issue of being educated in one language and therefore not being able to use your mother tongue even in that language. And yeah, you know, this is this is quite common when you when you suddenly have to deal with a you know a new a new area of life um in a language suddenly you might go back to your you know what you consider to be your mother tongue and you realize that you know you're not you're far better at dealing with it in a language that you considered foreign things so anya is a bilingual speaker of english and polish and here's what she had to say about humor in multiple languages all the jokes i knew all the slang all the humor was all in polish so then when i came to the uk and started hanging out with like british people i found myself kind of even though I know my English is fluent, but it's not it felt completely like it wasn't because I just couldn't keep up with like the jokes. And it's not just like cultural references and stuff. It's more like I never had to use English in such a context before. I never had to be like kind of witty and funny and in English. That for me was always like Polish. And even now, after four years, I still feel like I'm not as like kind of like quick witted and funny as I would be in Polish. Um, yeah, I mean, being German, I can relate to that because obviously I am not me? funny in German, but funny in my other languages. I mean, we all know, we all know that Germans don't have a sense of humour. That's that's fine. We don't. It's very sad. <laughs> uh, dear. But you know, again, you might be thinking, well, how does this relate to me? Because you know, it, perhaps you only speak one language. You've got to think. You know, if you move into a new area of life, uh, you might have no idea how to describe that thing. So if for example, you asked me to describe how the engine of a car works. I'd probably get stuck very quickly because I don't know all of the technical bits and bobs that go into a car, much to my father's disappointment, uh, I'm sure. Or, you know, the same, you know, if you were to suddenly plunge me into the world of corporate finance, I'd probably be completely lost. And, you know, that would be in English. I, I have no idea. And it would be, you know, it would be double Dutch to me, uh, as they say. And yeah, I mean, it, it happens to all of us, I think, you know, you're forced to learn a new set of vocabulary to go with new situations in life. And that for some people is what they go through with the languages. They only use a particular language for particular situations in life. Are you suggesting that really all of us are multilingual? Oh my goodness, maybe I am. Now, something we haven't mentioned so far is the different attitudes that people have towards multilingualism. Um, I like to think of it as good multilingualism versus bad multilingualism. Dun, 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 dun. So, you know, having gone to a bilingual 
German English school. Everyone in Germany is like, oh, this is great. You speak English. Wonderful. Useful. Uh, how could that be seen as something bad? Um, but sending your kid to a bilingual English school could be seen as something bad, as Elisabeth told us. And my parents incurred a lot of criticism for doing it because uh, my grandmother and my great-grandfather, they uh, like they're kind of linguists and they've done a lot for the Georgian language. I remember just kind of overhearing some people talking and them just saying how it, they were surprised that my family has done this and they've put me in the school um, and just a lot of criticism of if, if they are forgetting Georgian, what do they expect everyone else to do? So that was uh, you know, Elizabeth saying essentially how her family was criticised. Yeah, and we heard something similar from uh, Elise, who said that um, at her international school, the attitudes towards people being bilingual, French and English, the attitudes were, um, towards English were quite negative. I was in an international school, so there were many people that were bilingual, people that would speak in Spanish, Arabic, Portuguese, German, they would all be fine. They could speak in any language they want. But then when the English speakers started talking, it would always be, you're just showing off because you can speak English and English. And it was this thing where people had an aversion to English language. It was very strange. So there's no sort of overall broad statement that we can make where we say, ah, this kind of multilingualism is always seen as something good and this kind of multilingualism is always seen as something bad. Um, I mean, I think we can draw a general pattern quite often in this country. You know, there are certain languages which are seen as more prestigious. So you will more often hear like, oh, wow, your child is bilingual in English and French or English and Spanish or English and German, because those are well-respected European languages. You know, we have stories of, you know, friends where you know, they might speak, a, you know, an African language, as you know, or their parents, we should say, might speak an African language such as Yoruba or, you know, some, some smaller language. And, you know, they're often discouraged uh, from speaking multiple languages. And, you know, the whole range of reasons is given, right? Yeah, and the interesting thing here is that usually um, what we see is when a language is less prestigious or um, when it's not usually thought of as um, having any sort of monetary value attached to it, um, people get discouraged from speaking it. And a lot of the time, this is when the kids enter school and teachers say, oh, you know, you don't want to confuse the, ch um, the children with too many languages, um, which is exactly what happened in my family. And it's something that still happens today. So in Germany, we have a lot of people who speak Polish or Turkish, and usually teachers will discourage parents from speaking Turkish or Polish with their children. Whereas if the language is French or English or Spanish or whatever, that's perfectly fine. And obviously it makes no sense to say, you know, this language will confuse your child, but this one won't. Right. I mean, languages are in, in a certain sense all equal. Uh, and Frederica did have one or two words to say about this and how these are unfounded, essentially. So here's, let's hear what she had to say. So it's a very Eurocentric view that the world used to be monolingual and now, oh my God, we are getting all this multilingualism and all these rootless people and it's scary and it shouldn't be the case. And I cannot actually overstate how false this impression is and also how unfounded the fear of multilingualism is. Multilingualism has to be seen as the normal condition under which language was used for 
all the known history of humankind and also the context in which language evolved and developed. So we've heard from people from all over the place um, talking about how um, they grew up in multilingual environments for different reasons. Look at us, we're just so international. So international. Like Mr. Worldwide. Um, but then there's some countries where which are typically thought of as being monolingual, um, but which aren't monolingual at all, Ooh. like Italy. Italy. Now, for those who are maybe uh, unaware, Italy has quite a, a colourful past in that up until, I think, a couple of hundred years ago, uh, it was made up of lots of teeny tiny kingdoms, very small kingdoms. And it's only recently that Italy has been unified into one country, essentially, which has left uh, a big dialectal patchwork, what today are referred to in Italy as dialetti, if I pronounce that correctly, uh, there or thereabouts. Uh, it's just me trying to show off. But, you know, in, you know, we could even go as far as calling them separate languages. You know, it depends very much on your definition of that. Well, and in some cases, they are definitely separate languages um, to a point where most of my friends from the south of Italy would consider themselves bilingual because they speak whatever the local language is, and standard Italian. And here's a lovely story from Peter about that. The language, the language went hand in hand with the, the progress of the country. So as, as the country became more sort of economically, uh, you know, progressed economically and became richer, the language associated with that came to the forefront and it was what was used on television, on the radio, and newspapers. And the dialects were considered to be you know, spoken by people who didn't follow that economic progress. They sort of got left behind. So if you speak one of these dialects, then it's it's an indication that, yes, of, of economic status, sort of class perhaps. And um, as far as, you know, in London when I meet Italian people, I think in a way I never really hear people speaking dialects because, you know, partly because most people don't all come from the same town. They come from very different parts of Italy. So the unifying language would be Italian rather than a dialect from whatever town they're from. So I don't, I don't really come across the dialects and I come across different accents, but that's it. And so the way in which you would speak Italian, do you feel that's also a part of kind of your identity? Like, I mean, do you still, are there any, have any of these regionalisms kind of made their way into your Italian or has your mother succeeded, for want of a better term, in giving <laughs> you a very kind of broad standard Italian? Like, mm -hmm. Or does, you know, the English side come through, like, how do those two, how does the multilingualism kind of, how do they interact with each other? Well, I think, because I didn't grow up in Italy, I'm less aware of these regionalisms. And um, so, you know, I'm, I'm aware that, for example, I speak with a bit of a Milanese accent, but I use, like, slang and swear words from Emilia-Romagna on the coast, and then some things that I've learned from friends in Rome. And then, obviously, there's a bit of an, an English accent, even, because that's my sort of main first language. So it's all these sort of combinations put together, which immediately lets Italian, you know, Italian-born people that they can't quite place me, and they they, they often think, okay, you're either from a, a region of Italy I've never been to, or you speak a dialect, and Italian Italian's not your first language. So there is this sense. I've been told I speak a Frankenstein Italian because it's all these different pieces from disparate parts put together to create some kind of Italian. So that was Peter talking about his Frankenstein Italian, uh, which is a very uh, vivid way of describing it. Uh, and I think you know that happens to a lot of people when you when you learn a language. If you don't stay in one place and just learn one type, you, you do end up with a a certain hodgepodge. I mean, I can say that for certainly the way I learned Spanish. My Spanish is definitely a little bit of everything. It's a witch's cauldron of Spanish. 
Um, we also spoke to Azra, um, who is from Bosnia, and she told us a little bit about um, this issue of, you know, how to say things correctly in one or another variety of what is essentially the same language. And here's what she had to say about that. Well, my mother tongue is Bosnian, but I have my neighbors, a house next to me who call it Croatian. I know what's my language, obviously. It's the official language of my country, it's officially recognized. If you grew up in Balkans, you automatically speak four different languages, which are not the same languages. We will all understand each other, but they will have their own differences. And if you grew up in the Balkans, in a region that had the wars between all of these four language groups, you grew up to be so sensitive on your own language, but also when you speak to someone else, how do you name your own language? When you're speaking to the person you had like maybe war 10 days, um, like 10 years ago or something, because there's a lot of negation between the languages. And then when I was growing up, I had to take care of a lot of, I had to pay a lot of attention to the ways how I'm combining my language. And it's very interesting that the old Balkan people, when they go after the Balkan and they go to the Europe, to the other parts of the Europe or like the world, and they meet up, they're going to say it's our language. They're not going to say it's Bosnian, it's Croatian, it's Serbia, Montenegro or something. We will say it's our language. But if we are in Bosnia or Serbia, Croatia, Montenegro, we will say it's Bosnian, Croatian, Serbian or Montenegro. So it's always very uh, interesting. Because if you speak your language in certain ways, it very often defines who you are, your religion and your ethnicity as well, and your nationality. So if I would go to some other places, I wouldn't try to say certain words. I would, I would mix those words with the words that are said in that area. If I want to ensure my safety, that didn't happen in Bosnia. But if I would go to some other parts of the Balkans, like Serbia or Croatia, I would try to hide it a little bit if I see that it's for the security things. If you go to a job interview and you're, you know that the person that's going to be there is not only the person that is maybe Catholic or Orthodox, which will mean that we'll talk Serbian or Croatian, that's the Balkan context, then I would maybe try to subsume sometimes one of these very Bosnian traditional words. So I had issues where I would be abroad and I would say something that is typically Bosnian. And I would say, no, you don't say it like that. You say it this way, which is a typical, for example, for Croatian language, which is not typical for mine. So if the person is a little bit of a nationalist, then my relationship will change because I will be more protective of my language, for example. Just maybe to give a bit of background to what Azra had to say there, for those not aware, um, so the Balkans is the region which is now comprised of Serbia, Bosnia, Croatia, that kind of region above Greece and just, just across from Italy. Exactly. And um, linguistically, that's very interesting because you could say that it's all the same language and it, the varieties spoken there used to be treated as only one language. But now every one of those states has their own national language. That's right. So, so under, under you know, the, its Yugoslavian domain, everybody was said to speak Serbian and that was it. Serbo-Croatian. Or Serbo-Croatian, yeah, as I think it, it was called. Obviously, those broke up into its constituent states of Croatia, Bosnia, Montenegro, and Serbia. Uh, and they decided that in order to forward their national identities, they would not be speaking Serbian, of course. They would be speaking Croatian, Bosnian, Montenegrin, and Serbian. 
So the phrase, you can't teach an old dog new tricks, is often cited in learning a new language. While there's no point in me trying to learn a language, only children can learn languages perfectly. And this is not true, as, as we've uh, seen and heard from uh, several of our interviewees. Actually, it's not that difficult to pick up a new language. You can just do it. It's also a very Eurocentric view, because it's an opinion that is based on contexts where people learn and acquire languages in the settings that we know in the West. In other cultures, people are actually kind of growing in and out of languages throughout their entire lives, and that means they are much more flexible and adaptive to learn languages. We also asked people about what multilingualism means for their identity. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, there there was that kind of, you don't know your language properly because you don't know the slang, like, you know, the slang or the swear words. And there are loads of slang, like, words and, like, phrases that I still don't know. I mean, I've heard of them, picked up on them a lot more now. But, um, yeah, no, I don't know a lot of the more, uh, you know, the more relaxed kind of form of Urdu. And, yeah, when I would be in school, that would be um, picked up on For me, it's super important. It's one of the key things of my identity, is being multilingual. Multilingualism is a very important thing because it also wires your brain differently. I think and I think it also helps you be more smart. I think it adds an interesting twist to someone's identity. Um, the sense of belonging to a culture, I think, that you can't get until unless you know the language from the culture. Knowing the language gives you another sense of belonging to another culture, um, you know, even knowing English. So to bring this podcast to a close, to, uh, to, uh, to, to round this all off nicely, it's fair to say that multilingualism has many, many guises. Um, and as Friederika said... There are as many different ways of being multilingual as there are languages. Very nicely put, Friederika. Thank you very much. I mean, I'm thanking her, but she's not actually here. But basically, multilingualism has many, many forms, and we think, at least, should be cherished in the diversity it brings us and really shows the, the diversity that we, as people, all have. Thank you very corny. I think the main thing to take away is that multilingualism in any shape or form is really always a good thing and something that can enrich your life. And certainly the things which make multilingualism negative are not the languages themselves, it's the societies they sit in and the attitudes that are pointed towards them. So even if you don't want to go out and learn another language... Although we are definitely advocating that, like definitely download you know, a, a popular language learning app right now. I don't know if we have the rights to actually cite certain ones. Well, actually, there's also loads of language learning apps for indigenous languages out there. <gasps> yes, there are. Um, mm. So you're not just limited to the standard set of uh, Western European uh, languages. No, so even if, you know, you, you, know you, you, you don't want to go out and learn a language, you've still got to take into account the fact that you are using multiple varieties and... Keep translanguaging. <laughs> This podcast was recorded at SAS Radio. Our music is Yellow Light District by Lobo Loco. You can find a link to their music in the show notes. This podcast forms part of a series of four podcasts produced by the SAS World Languages Institute, celebrating UNESCO's International Year of Indigenous Languages 2019. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to listen to the other three episodes as well.